at the end of the day, you know, we live, we work in a really creative environment and creativity can is often born by constraint. And the constraint of our finances helped us to think in different ways about how we would do those things. It was, it was challenging to watch. It was hugely educational for me to watch a process like that, full of leadership, exploring their own emotions, exploring their reactions to things, both positive and negative, um, and still coming out on the other side with a plan in place. That was the voice of Taylor Scott. Taylor serves as Chief of Staff and Communications at Rhode Island School of Design, and she and others have spent much of their time lately leading the charge toward a new strategic plan for RISD, a plan that takes into account the shifting demographics of higher education, realistic financial models and goals, a plan that comes together as the result of the collective efforts of not just the administration and board, but faculty and staff and beyond. Thanks to the team's diligent efforts, RISD now has just such a plan. Next, RISD 2020-27. Today on the show, we're delighted to have Taylor Scott with us as she joins Rebecca Mazone and Howard Teibel to talk about the process that allowed this plan to emerge and how they navigated challenges along the way. For resources that accompany this conversation, visit tybelink.com slash podcast slash 217, or check for links in the episode notes in your podcast app. What we're talking about here is the RISD 2020-2027 next strategic plan and the and the strategic plan was was actually named next which i think is so creative and really focusing on something simple and memorable so what i wanted to start off by is give you taylor a chance describe just for a moment the role you play at risney but also some background about how you got to this point and then in bringing myself and rebecca into this conversation Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited that we have just launched this plan um, into our community. It's felt like a long time in the making, but we're finally there. So I'm really excited to be talking about it. I am the Chief of Staff and Communications at Rhode Island School of Design. And my role is really hard to describe. I do wear many hats. So I am first and foremost strategic advisor to the president, make sure that she is set up for success in everything that she does. And that involves communications, which is in my title. Um, So presidential messaging, formal and informal communications and engagement with internal and external constituents. But it's also very tactical. I run the office of the president. I make sure all of the events that she's going to be attending are, you know, she's well staffed and prepared for those, Um, you know, everything from mailings to filing to, you know, her calendar. So really, um, I am the person that tries to set our, our president up for success to the greatest extent. And I have to also say, I, I am fairly new to RISD. I have been here for about 18 months. And so when I first sort of walked in the door, I walked into a strategic planning process that had been going on for about two years. 
And, you know, it, it does take a year or two to create your next strategic plan. But I think what sort of made it more noticeable to me um, as the chief of staff is that it didn't seem like we were moving at a fast enough pace mm. and that we were going to actually um, get to the finish line within six months or a year. So that's obviously a cause for alarm. I think um, we were concerned that the sort of the president's credibility was on the line, um, that her vision needed to be established. She'd been in the off- in office for uh, almost four years. And so um, I, I walked in and just dove headfirst into that planning process and to try to see how quickly and efficiently I could get people on the same page and moving in the right direction. And it turns out not that quickly. So <laughs> there was a lot to discuss. It was really a beast to tackle. And so I brought in Howard and Rebecca to help us. Very often when I get brought in, when Rebecca gets brought in, either when we're together or separately, it's often the case that we are either there to give a solution or we have answers or we're really being micromanaged and not used for our real strengths. And I think that you learned very early how to partner with us. So it, you, you made it easy. And I'll tell you something, not easy to do well. Well, thank you. I feel like you're giving me too much credit. I, I honestly probably didn't know what I was doing and just thought, these people <laughs> can help me. These people nice. can come in. <laughs> nice. But I also have to say, I'm really lucky to have uh, such a wonderful boss in President Summerson, who allowed me the opportunity and the challenge to be involved in the strategic plan. Um, it's it is typically done, um, you know, by by other people in the organization. And I did have a really wonderful partner in Mara Hamano, our vice president of integrated planning, who's no longer at RISD, but um, really helped to drive this process as well. Coming in and being in a conversation about vision and where we want to be, but also grounding it in the financial stories. Say a little bit about what that was like for you and and how this was different uh, from other strategic planning projects that you've been involved in, Rebecca, around, because I know we started talking about this. This process was different because I think, you know, RISD really wanted to make sure that there was a more broad buy-in and understanding to why things needed to be prioritized differently or why certain things had to be implemented at a different scale so that people could really engage not just in what do we want the future to look like, but what are the financial realities of that. What's your observation, Taylor, about what made that possible here? Well, I think really good leadership from our vice president, senior vice president of finance and administration, um, who was able to lead the conversation um, in a way that married our finances and our strategy and vision. Um, and and he had a lot of patience. Um, Shout out his name so people can Dave Prue. There Dave we go. Prue. Dave Prue. Um, he had a lot of patience and fortitude, I have to say, to get us there because it, it was at times... Um, disheartening and frustrating to have to be constrained by finances. And people, um, especially in the room who were not used to uh, dealing closely with the constraints of your financial picture, uh, found it um, extremely frustrating and at times sort of felt resigned or felt like this isn't 
we're never going to to reach what we want to do. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, we li- we work in a really creative environment, and creativity can is often born by constraint. And the constraint of our finances helped us to think in different ways about how we would do those things. The players in this too that were remarkable. You had the president, you had the president's cabinet, and you had a very active involvement of your deans in this process. In this, in. So say a little bit about how you integrated the deans into this exercise from the beginning. You know, I think first and foremost, it's important to note RISD is about, uh, has a student population of about 2,500. We really are on par with most small private liberal arts colleges. We, our academic structure is different. Obviously, we're an art and design school. But when we're comparing apples to apples, um, it's really a, a, a like a, a small liberal arts college. Um, however, our deans, we have four academic deans, they play a really large role, almost as if they are each controlling a, a small college within the college, um, which is a little bit different than, than our peers. And so we felt that it was really important to involve those deans. Um, so we have a dean of liberal arts, we have a dean of art, architecture and design, fine arts, and then our foundation studies. They hold a lot of knowledge. They hold, honestly, a lot of power and sway in our faculty community. And so um, we wanted to make sure that they felt like they were valued and input and that they were valued and input, had input into the process. Um, Our president, President Roseanne Summerson, is a very collaborative leader. That's her sort of leadership style. She does not do things often top down. Um, and so it was important to her to get the buy-in of the academic community. And, and it was, I think, at the end of the day, a really smart decision. So one of the things that uh, we talked about before is the financial story that ties to both what we want to do, what it might constrain, but what opportunities are there. Can you say anything about some of the context around the financial story, my sense is it got people really out of a sense of complacency. And not that people are complacent, because I don't want people to confuse that, anyone listening to it from RISD, but an awareness that something needs to change and that we have to balance the financial story with our vision about who we want to be. Definitely. So our our biggest two financial stories, if you will, um, are tuition dependency and our deferred maintenance. So um, we are a tuition-dependent college. We um, are in continuing to increase our, our tuition every year. It is something that I don't think anyone at the administrative level is comfortable with um, and wants to stop or curb, certainly the president. Um, that's where the majority of our operate of our revenue comes from, and that's where the majority of our operating budget goes toward uh, financial aid and scholarships. The other part of that is that we, while we are very um, tuition dependent, we do have um, sol- we are on solid financial footing. We have a net operating income every year, which we put toward a significant amount of deferred maintenance on our campus, and we are committed to doing that. Right, so. The issue when we were doing the strategic plan was that we didn't have a lot of wiggle room. Um, and it felt like at times there was 
uh, no point in doing a strategic plan because we had to tackle deferred maintenance and we needed to just put everything towards scholarships and financial aid. So we had to get really creative and it actually ended up informing the initiatives within our strategic plan, what we were planning to do to, to change our fi- future financial model. I mean, we looked at a lot of, a lot of what's in the plan has to do with alternative sources of revenue that are still mission critical and mission dependent. Um, but are bringing in other dollars um, besides just our undergraduate and graduate tuition dollars. Nice. So, so Re- Rebecca, you're, you know, you got pulled into this conversation. You started to see that. How did you find yourself uh, guiding uh, both Dave and being in conversation with Dave and, and thinking about this from the financial perspective? You know, one of the things that Taylor mentioned was the importance of those, uh, you know, additional or alternative revenue streams in really being able to fund the some of the initiatives that just had an out-of-pocket cost associated with them. So in that process, put, what we did was we put together an exercise, and we'll talk about that shortly, where we allowed the people who were really trying to make the decisions and think about what are the individual actions within the strategic plan to go through some, you know, some scenarios regarding, you know, the financial realities. So if we really want to spend money on this initiative and it's really important to us, where does that money come from? And so we gave them um, sources of revenue as well as sources of expenses with some parameters and allowed them to go in and think about, well, you know, which ones would you do first because they ultimately generate more revenue and it allows you to then take on another initiative and be able to pay for it. You know, and what's fascinating about this as you're speaking and I'm listening to you is that in the background, there was a mood of skepticism. And, and, and the skepticism is, in all cases, uh, both related to some of the history, right? So people have a history of going through this before. Uh, in some sense, people have a sense of like, oh, here's where we were successful. But skepticism is a certain kind of concern about whether this is really going to meet their needs. We did find ourselves in one particular gathering of the deans and leadership when the financial story was being articulated. It was really clear that it was really affecting the deans. And, and one of the conversations we opened up that they were very open about was what kind of mood did they find themselves in? So what was that like for you, Taylor, watching that shifting mood through this process? It was hard. I mean, honestly, it was, it was hard. Um, you know, I think that's the, that I recall that meeting. I think that's the night I went home and drank and <laughs> <laughs> how are we going to do this? <laughs> but was very thankful we had you and Rebecca on hand to help navigate us through that because you did a brilliant job of facilitating that conversation, getting people to be honest um, without us all throwing our hands up in the air and leaving the meeting, which we had done before. It was it was challenging to watch. It was hugely educational for me to watch a process like that, full of leadership, exploring their own emotions, exploring their reactions to things, both positive and negative, um, and still coming out on the other side with a plan in place. It had to happen for us to all get to the point where we got to 
but that's not to say it was easy. It was not easy to watch or to participate in. What's interesting about the about the mood is I feel like, you know, you and I have worked together over the years and I always learn something. And what for what was so powerful about that day and especially one moment in particular, when you stopped everyone right at the end and said right at the end of one particular transition point and said, so now I want everyone to sort of engage and think about what's your mood? How did your mood just change with that one statement? And then, you know, several people shared their change in mood and you're connecting it to everyone and saying, now that you understand how that affected your mood, you know, the goal was don't let that stop us from continuing to move forward with the process. And I think that for me was such a powerful learning experience as well in it, because I do think that very often when you get frustrated, it's very easy to close your ears and not want to engage. And I do also remember saying to Taylor and Mara, like, I know that this is really hard for you, but you are, you know, everything is going so well and you are really making a lot of progress. It's just hard to really appreciate that at this moment in time. You know, I love what you just said, Rebecca, is that because I'm watching... Taylor right now, she's nodding her head, is that when you're in the middle of it, you cannot see how you're doing, especially if you haven't done this before. And I would imagine for you, Taylor, even hearing that encouragement made a difference. Oh, I remember Rebecca pulling us aside and saying, this is actually, I know it seems like this is going (laughs) off the rails. This is actually really good. You've made progress already. This is part of the process. And she was right. It was. So one of the one of the really interesting things uh, for me in this was how we brought the different accelerated kind of creativity. So say a little bit about your internal person who who actually teaches design. This is something that I think RISD did remarkably well. Is that you put people forward who had the skills and the determination to be contributors in this process. So say a little bit about this piece before we talk about how we integrated this with the finances. Yeah, I think this is um, also just a nod to bringing in um, members of your academic community because they they bring in a different way of thinking. It may not always be linear, and sometimes um, that's a little tricky when you're planning, but uh, it, the end result is really enriching. And this is a great example. This was Charlie Cannon, our assistant dean of architecture. Um, And he basically did a sort of design thinking exercise where he got post-it notes and put all of the the initiatives and um, goals that we had come up with on different charts and sort of uh, created paths between their relationships to show how the strategic plan was actually was not linear, was very interconnected across pillars, across goals. You know, the plan that we were starting to formulate was so dependent, each initiative was so dependent on the other that it really was, he showed us it really was a cohesive whole. It sort of felt like a bunch of things all thrown together, but every one of them had to do with a vision that we were putting forward. It really showed me, as you talked about weaving internal folks, your, your, your academic folks to be part of this process, what it did, because I could have, in a different way, led a non-linear visual conversation, but because it was Charlie, 
right? Because it was internal, there was a different level of, of, of engagement and commitment by the group. And, and that's another really important lesson for us uh, and for anybody listening is, is to look for ways to have your internal champions play a role because your, your audience, the people you're trying to influence will listen differently than they're going to listen to people from the outside, even though we've got the competency. So, so there's opportunities to do that. I don't think we leverage that enough. And I'm sure you've seen this too, Rebecca, where the consultants try and do everything when in fact, it's really about the partnership and utilizing your great internal people. Right. Because I think the biggest, um, point of failure in achieving most strategic plans for all of us is the idea that, you know, at the top, leadership is coming up with the plan. And then we have this big splash and roll it out and let everyone know the contents of it. But then you have people at every level of the organization walking away saying, well, I I don't think that this affects my job. It's not my department's not listed. There's no impact on me. I don't have a role or I disagree with it. Why are we doing this first instead of the initiative that I wanted? And so I think what, what what this process did was everyone participated and it allowed them the ability to participate in the decisions regarding how one thing has an impact on another, how the, this is connected in multiple complex ways. So it was a very great, you know, visual way of helping everyone to come to their own conclusion and realize their role and the importance of their role in achieving these initiatives, as well as, you know, more of an understanding and appreciation for how things are prioritized. So there's more trust in, you know, why my initiative isn't happening before someone else's or in a, you know, in a different way. We put it out there that your people were engaged, but I got to tell you, Taylor, the other thing about your deans and your senior leadership is that people had choice along the way, whether they were going to authentically or inauthentically be in this process. And we got to see people say their concerns, but then then recommit to being. In. So you have a unique, positive group of leaders. You had sort of this mantra, which I thought was really, really helpful for any um, leadership body to, to think about. And I, I can't, you're going to have to help me with it, but it was, it was, you can, you don't have to agree, but you have to commit, right? So can you talk more about that? Yeah. Well, and, and what's interesting, we did have that group conversation about can we engage in a conversation uh, or something that we are looking to do and be willing to vehemently disagree and still commit? That was such a great uh, thing for you to sort of repeatedly say to that group, um, especially the new leadership group. It was, it's, it seems simple, but it's, it's, you know, fundamental to a leadership team. And I think people took it seriously. Like they were willing to speak up, but also know in the end, not everybody's going to agree. Not everybody can even like where they're going. But uh, but your group as a whole was willing to move forward. And, and it also comes back to how important it is that your president said, even in the absence of 100% enthusiasm by every single person, here's where we're moving forward. 
what one of the things that I want us to talk about is this moment where after all the work that Rebecca and Dave did, really breaking down scenarios and thinking about a modest scenario, an aggressive scenario, where money goes, what we did that your people really surrendered to, we gave them this arbitrary, uh, meaningful number of $25 million and said, all right, here's a collection of initiatives as we look into the future. And you're going to break into teams and you're going to, in the next one hour, come up with a proposal about how you would spend that money and where that money would go. And then we captured it in real time and it became the basis of a conversation to see where there was overlap. And what was fascinating about this, Taylor, was one of the risks in doing this would be that the groups would end up being in a very different place. But I think what they got to see was, for the most part, they had similar commitments to the things that they wanted to do, but they also had different interpretations about timing and about what some of these things meant. So say a little bit about that part, because you were there, you were seeing this unfold, um, and how you think this process of getting people in subgroups to try and uh, formulate, how would we as a small team think about distributing the money? I thought it was a brilliant I, um, exercise. It's, it's scenario planning, um, uh, and it allows, I think it was much better done in small groups, uh, just because it allows discussion and debate about what the priorities are, and it allows people to talk through why they think certain things are priorities and why others are um, less important. And, and I think it also allows their, their minds to be changed. So, you know, and then when we all came together, what was so, so wonderful about it is that, you know, we got to see that we really are as a, as a fairly large leadership team, more on the same page than not. Right. And that this could be done and that we all had at least the same sort of three to four core priorities. Um, and we could then build a plan around those and start sequencing um, things that lead up to those three core sort of pillars. What did you notice about that, that exercise, Rebecca? So I, I have to make sure that I actually give Dave credit for all of the scenarios because he did all of the heavy lift. Um, I was more of the tour guide working with he and Mara to really think about how can we synthesize this because we also can't give everyone all of the details associated with, you know, three different scenarios projected over five years each. Um, so it was really trying to synthesize for everyone in a very simple way, connected with their words. You know, this is the initiative as you have worded it that, you know, is important to you. And here's, you know, we won't talk about the details of what's behind the scenarios, but this is a, you know, we can do this in a very light, minimal way, or we can do this aggressively and do it fast and it's more expensive up front. So we tried to keep it very simple, knowing that the goal was that we wanted to make sure that uh, we, everyone was aligning on priorities, but also that everyone started to understand and engage in the realities of 
you know, what certain things would cost so that we could also then weave in other opportunities for generating additional revenue. You know, I think this was a really important process. And I think it's just the beginning. So the important, you know, reality from a finance perspective is, you know, it's it's the start of opening up that conversation. But, you know, over the implementation of the strategic plan, it still needs to be a continuous conversation because it is still very new to everyone. And actually, that's a really great uh, transition to a conversation as we look forward. And, and as you look forward, Taylor, as you think about engaging uh, the community, uh, moving from we have a plan to, all right, how do we begin executing on the plan? This is one of those things where people need to learn about the difference between progress versus perfection. This is more of a marathon than a sprint. One of the things my interpretation was is that you created this beautiful written plan. It went out for a a vote. That's right. Unanimous support. Unanimous support from our faculty and our board. I mean, in some ways, that in itself was one of the criteria that I would think people were concerned about not happening. For RISD, that was huge. It was important that we had our last strategic plan got voted down by the faculty very contentious. So we were thrilled with the result of this. And and I think because for a number of reasons, there was the sense that not everybody is always going to agree. Your, your deans made a very concerted effort of engaging their faculty about what it means and, and, and allowed people to express concerns. So that when it got to a place where people said, all right, are we good with this? Uh, the majority of people say, listen, you guys have demonstrated good faith and, and it built trust. I mean, this is what was remarkable for me about this is the level of trust of the whole exercise. So now that you are on the other side of this, say a little bit about as you look forward, what are some of the things like how are you taking some of this goodwill and great work forward to the next piece of this work? So, you know, now the hard part actually begins. Um, the, the process of creating a plan was, was challenging and very just overwhelming. There's so much that you, you can do to sort of transform and move an organization forward. But now we're really digging in. And it's the same approach, Howard. It's, it's a collaborative approach and making sure our community is involved in every one of the initiatives that we're implementing. It's also about being really thoughtful and planful about how we're implementing um, our initiatives. So we have a, a, a fairly detailed five-year implementation plan. Um, our plan is for seven years, but by year six and seven, it, it just is a, it's a lost cause to plan that now. We don't know what that's going to turn into. Um, so we have, you know, we've been working on year one implementation over the summer. We have a very detailed plan for year one implementation and we're socializing it. The president has been out talking to every constituent on campus about exactly what we're going to do this year, uh, how we're going to do it and where we need the community involved. Um, so we, we still have some working groups getting together to, to, uh, make recommendations about how to execute certain things that are a little bit more gnarly than than others, and then with others we're just moving straight forward. So it's a it's a living, breathing document. We will be um, 
we will continue to be really collaborative and transparent with our community and our communications. And we have to evaluate it every year, twice a year. You know, is this still relevant? Is this still working? Do we want to change direction? For me, what, what made this go well in terms of our involvement was there was mutual trust. And, and I'm talking about with you, with Mara, with the president, and then this emerging trust that showed up with your senior leadership and your deans. And the way the show, trust showed up for me in a very practical way was there was, in the design of our role, there was a place where we were looking at possibly actually helping write the plan. Mm-hmm. That's right it became apparent that that really wasn't a need that you had orchestrated the creation of that. So what we did was we pivoted to offer different ways we can offer, offer value. So a key lesson for me about this is don't be married to your plan, really pay attention, you know, as opposed to, but you said that you're going to work on this. No, what's really needed right now. Because it might be different from what we thought it would need be in the first place. So that's one key lesson for me that I take away at a high level that I, that I think made this thing as a partnership go so well. What about for you, Rebecca? And then we'll let Taylor share any, uh, any final reflections. So I think that it was um, really important in thinking about a couple of the key questions that the president set forth that are really part of that you know, beginning of the strategic plan centered around, you know, what it, what does a RISD student look like now, and what is it that we want that that we want for their experience in 2027, and that's centered around the idea of um, really being clear on what is it that we want to achieve, so that you know it's not transforming to survive but thrive. So I think thinking about that as the as more of the important guiding star, um, it, you know, it allowed everyone to really think deeply about the the customer, the student as the focal point, and what is it that we want the RISD experience to be, when you're really focused on it from that perspective, it's so easy then to bring together all of the faculty, administration, finance, because at the end of the day, it gives you some really clear guidance on how to prioritize and what you're trying to achieve. That's beautiful. And and, and you pro- you prompted me to also add that to do these when you're in a position of strength, right? Mm, Yes. You know, you're on your cycle of whatever your strategic planning process is, but when you're in a relative position of strength, uh, the the way people engage will be very different than in when you're in this really this recognition of scarcity. There's always scarcity. There's always the things that we can't do, but RISD is in a position of strength. And I think that also contributed to people being able to have hard conversations. I agree. Although you run the risk of um, some complacency when you're in a position of strength. So you have to sort of learn how to still create a sense of urgency, right? And so, and we, we ran up against that in a little bit. I mean, nothing is truly going wrong at Receive. We're very lucky as an institution of higher education right now. We're on solid financial footing. We have wonderful enrollment stats. Um, so, so why make transformative change? And so you have to make sure you make the case for that. Great point. Anything you want to add, Taylor, in terms of uh, key lessons in this process? 
Well, I, there's there are two for me. One is that how valuable it is to have an outside voice in, in such a complicated process such as this. When you get a group of leaders together, it doesn't matter how sort of functioning, high functioning they are as a team. There are histories, there are relationships, there are dynamics in that room where you're making deci- hard decisions and big decisions that can be very tricky to navigate, to facilitate, and to move forward. And having some, you know, people like you, Howard and Rebecca in that room to help with that is so invaluable. It's kind of like you're having guests to dinner. And so you are a little bit on your best behavior. You're much more open to, um, to different conversations and ideas. Um, and I, I just thought it was hugely invaluable. And I would, I would recommend anyone going through this process to bring in um, a facilitator either at the beginning or whenever you feel like it would be most helpful, um, if nothing more than to move the conversation along because they can you can get really stuck. There's a lot of challenges and impediments when you're in a big planning process like this. Um, and the other part is sort of part and parcel with this. It's okay to take a long time to do your planning process if you're doing it right and really well. It's going to pay off in your implementation. So. You know, if you need to take extra time to write the plan or to to come up with the plan because you're building buy-in, you're building trust, you're having more meetings, you're having more conversations, you're taking the time to bring in a consultant, um, it's worth it. I know a lot of times um, there's a sense of urgency of just getting it done. We need to we need to finish. We need to to have a vision and move forward. Um, but if you if you don't create that sort of collaborative input, you're really going to pay for it when you try to execute those those initiatives that you've set out. Um, And so I got really frustrated at how long this took on occasion, but looking back, it was well worth the the eight months that we went through the planning process. So listen, I want to just wrap up by saying just uh, what a privilege it was uh, for Rebecca and I to be partnering with you in this and with your leadership and with your deans. It really was, I was really more engaged and and more committed to my work as a result of being in that project. So thank you so much. And thank you, Rebecca. And thank you, Taylor, so much for being in this call. Thank you. Thank you.